0: Neither will the natural pulpery that is in others do it. Men are galled with the guilt of a sin that has prevailed over them. They instantly promise to themselves and God that they will do so no more. They watch over themselves and pray for a season until this heat waxes cold and the sense of sin is worn off and so mortification goes also and sin returns to its former dominion. Duties are excellent food for an unhealthy soul, but they are no physic for a sick soul. He that turns his meat into his medicine must expect no great operation. Spiritually sick men cannot sweat out their distemper with working, but this is the way of men who deceive their own souls as we shall see afterward. That none of these ways are sufficient is evident from the nature of the work itself that is to be done. It is a work that requires so many concurrent actings in it as no self endeavor can reach unto, and is of that kind that an almighty energy is necessary for its accomplishment, it shall be afterward manifested. Number two, it is then the work of the Spirit, for He is promised of God to be given unto us to do this work, the taking away of the stony heart that is, the stubborn, proud, rebellious, unbelieving heart, is in general the work of mortification that we treat of. Now this is still promised to be done by the Spirit. Ezekiel eleven nineteen thirty six twenty six. I will give my spirit and take away the stony heart. And by the Spirit of God is this work wrought when all means fail. We have all our mortification from the gift of Christ, and all the gifts of Christ are communicated to us and given us by the Spirit of Christ. Without Christ we can do nothing. John 15 verse 5 all communications of supplies and relief in the beginnings, increasings, actings of any grace whatever from him are by the Spirit, by whom he alone works in and upon believers. From him we have a our mortification. He is exalted and made a prince and savior to give repentance unto us. Acts five thirty one. And of our repentance, our mortification is no small portion. How doth he do it? Having received the promise of the Holy Ghost, he sends him abroad for that end. Acts 2.33 You know the manifold promises he made of sending the Spirit, as Tertullian speaks, to do the works that he had to accomplish in us. The resolution of one or two questions will now lead me nearer to what I principally intend. The first is How does the Spirit mortify sin? Number one By causing our hearts to abound in grace and the fruits that are contrary to the flesh, and the fruits thereof and principles of them. So the Apostle opposes the fruits of the flesh and of the Spirit the fruits of the flesh says he are so and so Galatians 5 19 to 21 but says he the fruits of the spirit are quite contrary quite of another sort verses 22 and 23 he ate. But what if these are in us and do abound? May not the other abound also? No says he verse twenty four They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. but how why verse twenty five by living in the spirit and walking after the spirit, that is by the abounding of these graces of the spirit in us and walking according to them. For, saith the Apostle, these are contrary one to another, verse 17, so that they cannot both be in the same subject in any intense or high degree. This renewing of us by the Holy Ghost, as it is called, Titus 3, 5, is one great way of mortification. He causes us to grow, thrive, flourish, and abound in those graces which are contrary, opposite, and destructive to all the fruits of the flesh and to the quiet or thriving of indwelling sin itself. Number 2. By a real physical efficiency on the root and habit of sin for the weakening, destroying, and taking it away, Hence he is called a spirit of judgment and burning, really consuming and destroying our lust. He takes away the stony heart by an almighty efficiency, for as he begins the work as to its kind, so he carries it on as to its degrees. He is the fire which burns up the very root of lust. Number three, he brings the cross of Christ into the heart of a sinner by faith, and gives us communion with Christ in his death, and fellowship in his sufferings, of the manner whereof more afterward. Secondly, if this be the work of the Spirit alone, how is it that we are exhorted to it? Seeing the Spirit of a God alone can do it, let the work be left wholly to him number one. It is no otherwise the work of the Spirit, but as all graces and good works which are in us are His, He works in us to will and to do of His own good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 he works all our works in us. Isaiah twenty-six, twelve. The work of faith and with power. Second Thessalonians one, eleven. Colossians two, twelve. He causes us to pray and is the spirit of supplication. Romans eight, twenty-six. Zechariah twelve, ten. And yet we are exhorted and are to be exhorted to all these. Number two. He doth not so work our mortification in us as not to keep it still an act of our obedience. The Holy Ghost works in us and upon us as we are fit to be wrought in and upon, that is, so as to preserve our own liberty and free obedience. He works upon our understandings, wills, consciences, and affections agreeably to their own natures. He works in us and with us, not against us and without us, so that his assistance is an encouragement as to the facilitating of the work, and no occasion of neglect as to the work itself. And indeed I might here be well the endless foolish labor of poor souls, who, being convinced of sin and not able to stand against the power of their convictions, do set themselves by innumerable perplexing ways and duties to keep down sin, but being strangers to the Spirit of God, all in vain. They combat without victory, have war without peace, and are in slavery all their days. They spend their strength for that which is not bread, and their labor for that which profiteth not. This is the saddest warfare that any poor creature can be engaged in. A soul under the power of conviction from the law is pressed to fight against sin, but hath no strength for the combat. They cannot but fight, and they can never conquer. They are like men thrust on the sword of enemies on purpose to be slain. The law drives them on, and sin beats them back. Sometimes they think indeed that they have foiled sin when they have only raised a dust that they see it not. That is, they distemper their natural affections of fear, sorrow, and anguish, which makes them believe that sin is conquered when it is not touched. By that time they are cold, they must to the battle again, and the lust which they thought to be slain appears to have no wound." And if the case be so sad with them who do labor and strive, and yet enter not into the kingdom, what is their condition who despise all this, who are perpetually under the power and dominion of sin, and love to have it so, and are troubled at nothing, but that they cannot make sufficient provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Chapter 4 The last principle I shall insist on, omitting first the necessity of mortification into life, and secondly, the certainty of life upon mortification is, 3, that the life, vigor, and comfort of our spiritual life depend much on our mortification of sin. Strength and comfort and power and peace in our walking with God are the things of our desires." Were any of us asked seriously what it is that troubles us, we must refer it to one of these heads. Either we want strength or power, vigor and life in our obedience, in our walking with God, or we want peace, comfort, and consolation therein. Whatever it is that may befall a believer that doth not belong to one of these two heads doth not deserve to be mentioned in the days of our complaints." Now, all these do much depend on a constant course of mortification concerning which observe, number one, I do not say they proceed from it as though they were necessarily tied to it. A man may be carried on in a constant course of mortification all his days and yet perhaps never enjoy a good day of peace and consolation. So it was with Heman. Psalm 88. His life was a life of perpetual mortification and walking with God, yet terrors and wounds were his portion all his days. But God singled out him, a choice friend, to make him an example to them that afterward should be in distress. Canst thou complain if it be no otherwise with thee than it was with him, that eminent servant of God? And this shall be his praise to the end of the world." God makes it His prerogative to speak peace and consolation. I will do that work, says God. I will comfort Him. But how? By an immediate work of the new creation. I create it, says God. The use of means for the obtaining of peace is ours. The bestowing of it is God's prerogative. Number 2. In the ways instituted by God for to give us life, Vigor, courage, and consolation, mortification is not one of the immediate causes of it. They are the privileges of our adoption made known to our souls that give us immediately these things. The Spirit bearing witness with our spirits that we are the children of God, given us a new name and a white stone, adoption and justification, that is, as to the sense and knowledge of them, are the immediate causes in the hand of the Spirit of these things. But this I say, number three, in our ordinary walking with God, and in an ordinary course of His dealing with us, the vigor and comfort of our spiritual lives depend much on our mortification, not only as a quasi sin but as a thing that hath an effectual influence thereunto, 4, number 1, this alone keeps sin from depriving us of the one and the other. Every unmortified sin will certainly do two things. It will weaken the soul and deprive it of its vigor, it will darken the soul and deprive it of its comfort and peace. It, will, it weakens the soul and deprives it of its strength. When David had for a while harbored an unmortified lust in his heart, It broke all his bones and left him no spiritual strength. Hence he complained that he was sick, weak, wounded, faint. There is, saith he, no soundness in me. Psalm 38, verse 3 I am feeble and sore broken. Verse 8 Yea, I cannot so much as look up. Psalm 40, verse 12 An unmortified lust will drink up the spirit and all the vigor of the soul and weaken it for all duties, for first it untunes and unframes the heart itself. By entangling its affections, it diverts the heart from the spiritual frame that is required for vigorous communion with God. It lays hold on the affections, rendering its object beloved and desirable, so expelling the love of the Father, 1 John 2.15, 3.17, so that the soul cannot say uprightly and truly to God, Thou art my portion, having something else that it loves. Fear, desire, hope, which are the choice affections of the soul that should be full of God, will be one way or another entangled with it. Secondly, it fills the thoughts with contrivances about it. Thoughts are the great purveyors of the soul to bring in provision to satisfy its affections. Amen. And if sin remain unmortified in the heart, they must ever and anon be making provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. They must glaze, adorn, and dress the objects of the flesh and bring them home to give satisfaction. And this they are able to do in the service of a defiled imagination beyond all expression. Thirdly, it breaks out and actually hinders duty. The ambitious man must be studying, and the worldling must be working or contriving, and the sensual vain person providing himself for vanity when they should be engaged in the worship of God. Were this my present business to set forth the breaches, ruin, weakness, desolations that one unmortified lust will bring upon a soul, this discourse must be extended much beyond my intendment. Number 2. As sin weakens, so it darkens the soul. It is a cloud, a thick cloud, that spreads itself over the face of the soul and intercepts all the beams of God's love and favor. It takes away all sense of the privilege of our adoption, and if the soul begins to gather up thoughts of consolation, sin quickly scatters them, of which afterward. Now, in this regard, doth the vigor and power of our spiritual life depend on our mortification. It is the only means of the removal of that which will allow us neither the one nor the other." Men that are sick and wounded under the power of lust make many applications for help they cry to God when the perplexity of their thoughts overwhelms them even to God do they cry but are not delivered in vain do they use many remedies they shall not be healed so hosea 5:13 Ephraim saw his sickness, and Judah his wound, and attempted sundry remedies, nothing will do until they come, verse 15, to acknowledge their offense. Men may see their sickness and wounds, but yet, if they make not due applications, their cure will not be effected. Number 2. Mortification prunes all the graces of God and makes room for them in our hearts to grow. The life and vigor of our spiritual life consists in the vigor and flourishing of the plants of grace in our hearts. Now, as you may see in a garden, let there be a precious herb planted, and let the ground be unkilled and weeds grow about it. Perhaps it will live still, but be a poor, withering, unuseful thing. You must look and search for it, and sometimes can scarce find it, and when you do, you can scarce know it whether it be the plant you look for or no, and suppose it be, you can make no use of it at all. When, let another of the same kind be set in the ground, naturally as barren and bad as the other, but let it be well weeded, and everything that is noxious and hurtful removed from it, it flourishes and thrives. You may see it at first look into the garden, and have it for your use when you please. So it is with the graces of the Spirit that are planted in our heart. That is true. They are still. They abide in a heart when there is some neglect of mortification, but they are ready to die. Revelation 3, 2. They are withering and decaying. The heart is like the sluggard's field, so overgrown with weeds that you can scarce see the good corn. Such a man may search for faith, love and zeal and scarce be able to find any and if he do so discover that these graces are there yet alive and sincere yet they are so weak so clogged with lust that they are of very little use they remain indeed but are ready to die but now let that heart be cleansed by mortification the weeds of lust constantly and daily rooted up as they spring daily, nature be in their proper soil. Let room be made for grace to thrive and flourish. How will every grace act its part and be ready for every use and purpose? Number 3. As to our peace, as there is nothing that hath any evidence of sincerity without it, so I know nothing that hath such an evidence of sincerity in it, which is no small foundation of our peace. Mortification is a soul's vigorous opposition to self, wherein sincerity is most evident. Chapter 5 These things being premise, I come to my principal intention of handling some questions or practical cases that present themselves in this business of mortification of sin and believers. The first which is ahead of all the rest, and whereunto they are reduced, may be considered as lying under the ensuing proposal. Suppose a man to be a true believer and yet finds in himself a powerful indwelling sin leading him captivity to the law of it, consuming his heart with trouble, perplexing his thoughts, weakening his soul as to duties of communion with God, disquieting him as to peace, and perhaps defiling his conscience and exposing him to hardening through the deceitfulness of sin. What shall he do? What course shall he take and insist on for the mortification of this sin, lust, distemper, or corruption, to such a degree as that, though it be not utterly destroyed, yet in his contest with it, he may be enabled to keep up power, strength, and peace and communion with God. In answer to this important inquiry, I shall do these things: One, show what it is to mortify any sin. And that both negatively and positively, that we be not mistaken in the foundation. 2. Give general directions for such things as without which it will be utterly impossible for anyone to get any sin truly and spiritually mortified. 3. Draw out the particulars whereby this is to be done, and the whole carrying on this consideration that it is not of the doctrine of mortification in general, but only in reference to the particular case before proposed that I am treating. To mortify a sin is not utterly to kill, root it out, and destroy it, that it should have no more hold at all nor residence in our hearts. It is true this is that which is aimed at, but this is not in this life to be accomplished. There is no man that truly sets himself to mortify any sin, but he aims at, intends, desires its utter destruction, that it should leave neither root nor fruit in the heart or life. He would so kill it, that it should never move nor stir any more, cry or call, seduce or tempt to eternity. It's not being is the thing aimed at. Now, though doubtless there may be, by the spirit and grace of Christ, a wonderful success and eminence of victory against any sin be attained, so that a man may have almost constant triumph over it, yet an utter killing and destruction of it that it should not be is not in this life to be expected. This Paul assures us of Philippians 3.12, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. He was a choice saint, a pattern for believers, who in faith and love and all the fruits of the Spirit had not his fellow in the world, and on that account ascribes perfection to himself in comparison of others. Verse 15. Yet he had not attained. He was not perfect, but was following after. Still a vile body he had, and we have, that must be changed by the great power of Christ at last. Verse 21. This we would have. But God sees it best for us, that we should be complete in nothing, in ourselves, that in all things we must be complete in Christ, which is best for us. Colossians 2, 10. 2. I think I need not say it is not dissimulation of a sin. When a man on some outward respects forsakes the practice of any sin, men perhaps may look on him as a changed man. God knows that to his former iniquity he has added cursed hypocrisy and has gotten a safer path to hell than he was in before. He has got another heart than he had, that is more cunning, not a new heart that is more holy. The mortification of sin consists not in the improvement of a quiet, sedate nature, Some men have an advantage by their natural constitution, so far as that they are not exposed to such a violence of unruly passion and tumultuous affections as many others are. Let now these men cultivate and improve their natural frame and temper by discipline, consideration, and prudence, as they may seem to themselves and others very mortified men when perhaps their hearts are at standing sink of all abominations. Some man is never so much troubled all his life, perhaps with anger and passion, nor doth trouble others, as another is almost every day. And yet the latter hath done more to the mortification of sin than the former. Let not such persons try their mortification by such things as their natural temper gives no life or vigor to. Let them bring themselves to self-denial, unbelief, envy, or some spiritual sin, and they will have a better view of themselves. Number four, a sin is not mortified when it is only diverted. Simon Magus, for a season, left his sorcery, but his covetousness and ambition set him on work, remained still, and would have been acting another way. Therefore, Peter tells him, I perceive that thou art in a gall of bitterness, notwithstanding the profession thou hast made, notwithstanding thy relinquishment of thy sorcery. Thy lust is as powerful as ever in thee. The same lust, only the streams of it are diverted. It now exerts and puts forth itself another way, but it is the old gall of bitterness still. A man may be sensible of a lust, Set himself against the eruptions of it. Take care that it shall not break forth as it has done, but in the meantime suffer the same corrupted habit to vent itself some other way, as he who heals and skins a running sword thinks himself cured, but in the meantime his flesh festereth by the corruption of the same humor and breaks out in another place. And this diversion with the alterations that attend it often befalls men on accounts wholly foreign unto grace. Change of the course of life that a man was in, of relations, interests, designs may affect it. Yea, the very alterations in men's constitutions occasioned by a natural progress in the course of their lives may produce such change as these. Men in age do not usually persist in the pursuit of youthful lust although they have never mortified any one of them. And the same is a case of bartering of lust and leaving to serve one that a man may serve another. He that changes pride for worldliness, sensuality for pharisaism, vanity in himself to the contempt of others, let him not think that he hath mortified the sin that he seems to have left. He has changed his master, but is a servant still." Number 5. Occasional conquests of sin do not amount to a mortifying of it. There are two occasions or seasons wherein a man who is contending with any sin may seem to himself to have mortified it. 1. When it have had some sad eruption to the disturbance of his peace, terror of his conscience, dread of scandal and evident provocation of God— This awakens and stirs up all that is in the man and amazes him, fills him with abhorrency of sin and himself for it, sends him to God, makes him cry out as for life, to abhor his lust as hell, and to set himself against it. The whole man, spiritual and natural, being now awaked, sin shrinks in its head, appears not, but lies as dead before him, As when one that hath drawn nigh to an army in the night, and hath killed a principal person, instantly the guards awake, men are roused up, and strict inquiry is made after the enemy, who, in the meantime, until the noise and tumult be over, hides himself, or lies like one that is dead, yet with firm resolution to do this like mischief again upon the like opportunity." Upon the sin among the Corinthians, see how they muster up themselves for the surprisal and destruction of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 7.11 so, so it is in a person when a breach hath been made upon his conscience, quiet perhaps credit, by his lust in some eruption of actual sin... Carefulness, indignation, desire, fear, revenge are all set on work about it and against it, and lust is quiet for a season, being run down before them. But when the hurry is over and the inquest passed, the thief appears again alive and is as busy as ever at his work. In a time of some judgment, calamity, or pressing affliction, The heart is then taken up with thoughts and contrivances of flying from the present troubles, fears, and dangers. This, as a convinced person concludes, is to be done only by relinquishment of sin, which gains peace with God. It is the anger of God in every affliction that galls a convinced person. To be quit of this, men resolve at such times against their sins. Sin shall nevermore have any place in them they will never again give up themselves to the service of it. Accordingly, sin is quiet, stirs not, seems to be mortified, not indeed that it hath received any one wound, but merely because the soul hath possessed its faculties, whereby it should exert itself, with thoughts inconsistent with emotions thereof, which, when they are laid aside, sin returns again to its former life and vigour. So they are a full instance and description of this frame of spirit whereof I speak. For all this they sin still, and believe not for his wondrous works. Therefore their days did he consume in vanity, and their years in trouble. When he slew them, then they sought him. And they returned and inquired early after God. And they remembered that God was their rock, and the high God their Redeemer." Nevertheless, they did flatter Him with their mouth, and they lied unto Him with their tongues. For their heart was not right with Him, neither were they steadfast in His covenant. I no way doubt but that when they sought and returned and inquired early after God, they did it with full purpose of heart as to the relinquishment of their sins. It is expressed in the word return. To turn a return to the Lord is by a relinquishment of sin. This they did early with earnestness and diligence, but yet their sin was unmortified for all this. Verses 36 and 37. And this is a state of many humiliations in the days of affliction, and a great deceit in the hearts of believers themselves lies oftentimes herein. These and many other ways there are whereby poor souls deceive themselves and suppose they have mortified their lust when they live and are mighty, and on every occasion break forth of their disturbance and quietness. Chapter 6 What it is to mortify a sin in general, which will make farther way for particular directions, is nextly to be considered. The mortification of a lust consists in three things. Number one, an habitual weakening of it. Every lust is a depraved habit or disposition continually inclining the heart to evil. This is that description of him who hath no lust truly mortified, Genesis 6, 5. Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. He is always under the power of a strong bent and inclination to sin, and the reason why a natural man is not always perpetually in the pursuit of some one lust, night and day, is because he hath many to serve, everyone crying to be satisfied. Thence he is carried on with great variety, but still, in general, he lies towards the satisfaction of self. We will suppose, then, the lust or distemper whose mortification is inquired after to be in itself a strong, deeply rooted, habitual inclination and bent of will and affections into some actual sin, as to the matter of it, though not under that formal consideration, always stirring up imagination, thoughts, and contrivances about the object of it. Hence, men are said to have their hearts set upon evil." the bent of their spirits lies towards it to make provision for the flesh. Any sinful, depraved habit, as in many other things, so in this, differs from all natural or moral habits whatever, for whereas they incline the soul gently and suitably to itself, sinful habits impale with violence and impetuousness, whence lusts are said to fight or wage War against the soul. First Peter 2.11, to rebel or rise up in war with that conduct and opposition which is usual therein. Romans 7.23, to lead captives or effectually captivating upon success in battle are works of great violence and impetuousness. I might manifest fully from that description we have of it, Romans 7, how it will darken the mind, extinguish convictions, dethrone reason, interrupt the power and influence of any considerations that may be brought to hamper it, and break through all into a flame. But this is not my present business. Now the first thing in mortification is the weakening of this habit of sin or lust, that it shall not with that violence, earnestness, frequency, rise up, conceive, tumultuate, provoke, entice, disquiet, as naturally it is apt to do. James 1, 14 and 15. I shall desire to give one caution or rule by the way, and it is this... Though every lust doth in its own nature equally, universally incline and impel to sin, yet this must be granted with these two limitations. One lust, or a lust in one man, may receive many accidental improvements, heightenings and strengthenings, which may give it life, power and vigor, exceedingly above what another lust hath, or the same lust that is of the same kind in nature in another man. When a lust falls in with the natural constitutions and temper with a suitable course of life, with occasions, or when Satan hath got a fit handle to it to manage it, as he hath a thousand ways so to do, that lust grows violent and impetuous above others, or more than the same lust in another man, then the streams of it darken the mind so that though a man know the same things as formerly, yet they have no power nor influence on the will, but corrupt affections and passions are set by it, at liberty. But especially lust gets strength by temptation. When a suitable temptation falls in with a lust, it gives it new life, vigor, power, violence, and rage, which it seemed not before to have or be capable of. Instances to this purpose might be multiplied, but it is the design of some part or another treatise to evince this observation. Number two, some lusts are far more sensible and discernible in their violent actings than others. Paul puts a difference between uncleanness and all other sins. 1 Corinthians six eighteen, Flee fornication! Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Hence, the motions of that sin are more sensible, more discernible than of others, when perhaps the love of the world or the like is in a person no less habitually predominant than that, yet it makes not so great a combustion in the whole man. And on this account some men may go in their own thoughts, and in the eyes of the world for mortified men, who yet have in them no less predominancy of lust than those who cry out with astonishment upon the account of its perplexing tumultuatings, yea, than those who have by the power of it been hurried into scandalous sins. Only their lusts are in and about things which raise not such a tumult in the soul, about which they are exercised with a calmer frame of spirit, their very fabric of nature being not so nearly concerned in them as in some other. I say, then, that the first thing in mortification is the weakening of this habit, that it shall not impale and tumultuate as formerly, that it shall not entice and draw aside, that it shall not disquiet and perplex the killing of its life, vigor, promptness, and readiness to be stirring. This is called crucifying the flesh with the lust thereof. Galatians 5, 24 That is, taking away its blood and spirits that give it strength and power, the wasting of the body of death, day by day. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 as a man nailed to the cross, he first struggles and strives and cries out with great strength and might. But as his blood and spirits waste, his strivings are faint and seldom. His cries low and hoarse, scarce to be heard. When a man first sets on a lust or distemper to deal with it, it struggles with great violence to break loose. It cries with earnestness and impatience to be satisfied and relieved, but when by mortification the blood and spirits of it are let out, it moves seldom and faintly, cries sparingly, and is scarce heard in the heart. It may have sometimes a dying pang that makes an appearance of great vigor and strength, but it is quickly over, especially if it be kept from considerable success. This the Apostle describes as in the whole chapter, so especially Romans 6, verse 6. Sin, saith he, is crucified. It is fastened to the cross. To what end? That the body of death may be destroyed, the power of sin weakened and abolished by little and little, that henceforth we should not serve sin. That is, that sin might not incline, impel us with such a as to make us servants to it as it has done heretofore. This is spoken not only with respect to carnal and sensual affections or desires of worldly things, not only in respect of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, but also as to the flesh, that is, in the mind and will, in that opposition unto God which is in us by nature. Of what nature soever the troubling distemper in us be, by what way soever it make itself out, either by impelling to evil or hindering from that which is good, the rule is the same. And unless this be done effectually, all after contention will not compass the end aimed at. A man may beat down the bitter fruit from an evil tree until he is weary, Whilst the root abides in strength and vigor, the beating down of the present fruit will not hinder it from bringing forth more. This is the folly of some men. They set themselves with all earnestness and diligence against the appearing eruption of lust. But leaving the principle and root untouched, perhaps unsearched out, they make but little or no progress in this work of mortification." Number two, in constant fighting and contending against sin, to be able always to be laying a load on sin is no small degree of mortification. When sin is strong and vigorous, the soul is scarce able to make any head against it. It sighs and groans and mourns and is troubled, as David speaks of himself, but seldom has sin in the pursuit. David complains that his sin had taken fast hold upon him, that he could not look up. Psalm 40, verse 12. How little then was he able to fight against it. Now sundry things are required unto and comprised in this fighting against sin. To know that a man hath such an enemy to deal with all, to take notice of it, to consider it as an enemy indeed, and one that is to be destroyed by all means possible, is required hereunto. As I said before, the contest is vigorous and hazardous. It is about the things of eternity. When therefore men have slight and transient thoughts of their lust, it is no great sign that they are mortified or that they are in a way for their mortification. This is every man's knowing the plague of his own heart, first Kings eight thirty eight, without which no other work can be done. It is to be feared that very many have little knowledge of the main enemy that they carry about with them in their own bosom. This makes them ready to justify themselves and to be impatient of reproof or admonition, not knowing that they are in any danger. Second Chronicles 16, verse
1: 10 This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books.